glad you're here as well. well let's take our Bibles this evening. Let's go back to the book of James, if, if you will. Book of James this evening. And we've been studying through the book of James for some time. We're coming quickly to the end of it. And I, I ask you to continue to pray with me about which next book of study we're going to jump into for our Wednesday evenings uh, together. And, of course, Wednesday evening is, is more of, um, you know, if I had to put a title to it, more of a teaching time than it is preaching time, if you will. There's always an element of preaching, of course, and always an element of teaching and preaching and vice versa. But uh, for the most part, it's a teaching time. And uh, so I'm, I'm always thinking, well, what, what should we do next? I want to do, of course, what the Lord wants us to do, but I ask you to help me pray about that. And, of course, if you have a suggestion of which book to go into, I'll be all ears listening. Of course, meaning book of the Bible, all right? Or, uh, or even subject of study, uh, maybe a series of study. I've been praying about a few different things. One I've been thinking a little bit about, let me think if you'll help me pray about, is um, different counseling topics, all right? Counseling, um, I don't know, what you, topics, I guess, would be the right, right terminology, and, uh, but my main goal behind that, would, again, with those counseling topics, was to equip the believers to help others going through those same situations. And uh, what, do you th what, do you, what do you say about counseling topics? What do you mean by that, preacher? Well, what I mean by this is topics, how do you counsel someone who may be uh, struggling with drinking or someone who may be struggling with lust and pornography? How do you help people with this? You see, your pastor's not the only one who should be helping people, you see. Hey, my end preacher. All right, thank you. All right, just make sure you're there. But uh, not the only one to be helping people. Uh, there's people all around us that need help. I was talking to folks even yesterday <clears throat> who, God is, who God has helped through a lot of different things, and now they're helping people. So we should be helping one another, but it should be as, as well as my job as a pastor, equipping the saints for the work of the ministry. All right, so this would be another potential way. But anyway, I've just been thinking about that. So let me pray about it. Or another book of the Bible, of course, let's go uh, verse by verse, chapter by chapter through. And as we've been doing so for, for some time on Wednesday evenings. But anyway, just let me pray about that, and I would greatly appreciate it. But let's go back to James chapter 5 tonight. And as we come back to James chapter 5, again, keep the overall 30,000-foot view and mind of this book, all right? How James himself is writing to Jewish believers who have been largely scattered abroad from their homes due to the cruel persecution that they have suffered and are enduring. Uh, but this persecution seems to be coming from the religious and political crowds of the day. And this was seen to be one of the first waves of persecution, if you will, uh, coming against the early church. But as James knows this, knows what they're facing, knows what they're going through, he knows they're hurting, he knows they're struggling, he knows they're suffering, he knows they're absolutely confused, he knows all of this, but he wants to help them. And so he does just that. As Pastor James sits down and writes this general epistle to instruct and encourage the believer who are really going through it. All right? So that's what he's doing. He's trying to help these people through this difficult time. And uh, so keep that all in mind as, we, as you read the book yourself and as we study it together. All right? We'll be in James chapter 5 and we'll look at verse number 7 with me, if you will. And we'll read down through verse number 11. But the Bible says this. Be patient, therefore, brethren, unto the coming of the Lord. Behold, the husbandman waiteth for the precious fruit of the earth and hath long patience for it until he receive the early and latter rain. Be also patient, establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord draweth nigh. Grudge not one against another, brethren, lest ye be condemned. Behold, the judge standeth before the door. Take, my brethren, the prophets who have spoken in the name of the Lord for an example of suffering, affliction, and of patience. Behold, we count them happy which endure. Ye have heard of the patience of Job, 
and have seen the end of the Lord, that the Lord is very pitiful and of tender mercy. Our Father, again, as we look to your word and look to these verses in particular, I pray that you would help us to understand it, help us to apply it to our lives, that we may grow in the grace and knowledge of our Savior, and help us, Lord, to be more equipped for the work of the ministry. In Jesus' name we ask. Amen. All right, now, <clears throat> last week I was not here. I was uh, a little under the weather, fighting some strep throat, but I'm doing better, thankfully. But uh, so last week I was not here to teach on this and finish this text that we started two weeks ago. You see, two weeks ago when we read this portion of Scripture, we found that the Bible was repeating itself, especially of one particular, uh, one particular word. We picked up on a phrase, on a word here, that the Bible was repeating itself. And just as a reminder, when the Bible repeats itself, uh, please know that it's not because God forgot what He said. All right, Rather, it's for emphasis. It's so that we do not forget. But we saw this word repeated five times within this text, and it's for emphasis, trying to draw out an emphasis, and it was this one. It was on this word, patience. You see it two times in verse 7, one time in verse 8, one time in verse 10, and yet again in verse number, in verse number 11. But I believe it's through this, of course, the Lord is trying to, cheat, to teach in these verses on the subject of, of patience. And as we consider the subject of patience, we viewed it through the lens of the context of which James is writing, which was, of course, through the context of suffering and the persecution they were facing. So we looked at this through patience. We saw patience through persecution. And be reminded just once again that it's through pain, it's through troubled times, it's through great difficulties of life that God can and will use those times to cultivate patience in our own lives as well. It would, do us, it would do us well to learn that emphasis of patience through those times. But as we see this text again, we do see another repeated emphasis, I believe, within these verses. And it's a phrase that's repeated two times and kind of alluded to in a third, but it's this phrase, the coming of the Lord. He says it two times, once in verse 7, again in verse number 8, and of course he references the judge in verse number Verse number 9, but I believe here that James is making an emphasis on the coming of, of the Lord. Look at it again, verse number 7. Be patient, therefore, brethren, unto the coming of the Lord. Now, as James writes this, why would this be significant for these believers to have this in their hand and to read with their eyes? Why would it be so significant to be reminded of such a great truth? Well, again, keep in mind the context. Of what's going on as James is writing. You see, if, if you or I were living during this time, and you or I were going through persecution that these individuals were facing, and they were under, under continuous scrutiny of the religious and political leaders of the day, and even being labeled as evil doers, meaning if you claim Christ as Savior, if you were saved, if you were a Christian, if you were those who followed the way, then you would be considered a common criminal. And as a common criminal, you'd be subject to be hauled off to prison, subject to torture, even be put to death. As a common criminal, you'd lose all your rights. You'd lose your land, lose your home, lose your income, lose everything. So as a common criminal, this is what these people would have been considered. And if you or I were facing that title, facing this treatment, wouldn't you and I, wouldn't we want the Lord to come at that moment? Yes, I got three yeses. Okay, good. All right, all right. 
Yes, you would want Jesus to return. And you'd want him to return immediately. And we will be echoing the statement of the Apostle John when he wrote this in the end of the book of Revelation, even so come quickly. Lord Jesus, that would be our daily prayer if you and I were facing such horrendous treatment as they were going through. So as James knows what they're facing, he encourages them and helps them by reminding them of his great truth, of our blessed hope that the Lord is coming. And so I want to consider this truth this evening, how the Lord is coming. And I ask God to help us to keep that on the forefront of our minds. All of us. Keep it on the forefront of our minds. Now, there are three aspects from this coming of the Lord that I would like to draw our attention to. Of course, there's many more, of course, but there's three I want to draw within the time we have this evening, I draw our attention to, all right? We'll see, we'll see these three things. Number one, we'll see the certainty of His coming. Number two, I want to see the closeness of His coming. And number three, I want to see the, I want to see the conduct of, of His coming, all right? So, but before we dive into that, I want to point out, all right, to keep in mind, when it comes to the coming of the Lord, there are, if I can say it this way, all right, you'll, you'll get what I'm saying in a minute. There are two comings, if I can say it that way, of the Lord, all right? Uh, we have what is referred to as the rapture, or the catching away of the church. And then you have what is, what is commonly called the second coming of Christ. And though these, these sometimes are used interchangeably, understand they're not the exact same event, and to help us with uh, showing, seeing the difference between these two events, seeing the distinction between these two events of the rapture of the church and the second coming of Christ, uh, this is how you can keep it in, in line, all right? Very simple, very easy. The rapture is this. The rapture is Jesus coming for his saints in the clouds, all right? 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 through 18. But the second coming is Jesus coming with his saints to the earth. Revelation chapter number 19. So many people will use these phrases interchangeably, but just know they are two uh, different future events. But the one I believe that James has on his mind at this moment, I believe would be the Lord coming for his saints, the rapture or catching away of, of the church. And I want to see this. Number one, I want to see the certainty of it. The certainty of of this event, it's going to happen. Look at verse number seven. Be patient, therefore, brethren, unto the coming of the Lord. Verse number eight. Be also patient, establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord draweth nigh. Listen, as James is writing here, he is not writing from a position of, I think this is going to happen. <laughs> He's not writing from a position of uncertainty. He's not wringing his hands and writing these words at the same time. No, he is pinning this down, of course, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, but with absolute uncertainty that this event will happen. Look again, verse number 8. Be also patient, establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord draweth nigh. He said it's coming. It's going to happen. And please know every apostle and disciple down through the years, they were looking for this to happen. They were awaiting the catching away, the rapture of the church. Take, for instance, even what Paul said about the event. In 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 13 through 18, he says, But I would not have you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning them which are asleep, 
that you sorrow not, even as others which have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so them also which sleep in Jesus will God bring with him. For this we say unto you by the word of the Lord, that we which are alive and remain under the coming of the Lord shall not prevent them. Prevent there means to proceed, all right? But shall not prevent them which are asleep. For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, the trump of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so shall we ever be with the Lord. Wherefore, comfort one another with these words. Now keep in mind as Paul is writing this in context, writing to the Thessalonian believers, these believers were living in fear and concern, mainly fear and concern for their family and loved ones who had died uh, and gone on to heaven, who had died before them. They were concerned with, with will I see them again? Will they see me? Will, will I know them? What, what's going to happen? So Paul wanted to, again, calm them and help them and comfort them and address these concerns and issues. But to do so, what he'd tell them? He told them of that mystery. He says it, he calls it a mystery in 1 Corinthians, I believe it is. Uh, but he calls it a mystery. He talks about the catching away, the rapture of the believers. He's letting them know that this is going to happen. And look how Paul puts it. Or listen, rather. You can turn there if you want to in 1 Thessalonians 4. But listen how Paul puts it. He says this in verse 15. He says, for this we say unto you, but he doesn't use his autograph he doesn't put his name in there. He doesn't put a church name in there. He doesn't use his title as the apostle. He says, no, no, no. This we say unto you by the word of the Lord. Paul gave the greatest promise he could ever give on the greatest authority he could ever give, and that is upon the word of God himself. Listen, Jesus will come again. Understand during his time when Paul was writing, James were writing, a lot of the pagan world of their day had no real hope after death. At least no hope of life after death. They had no real assurance from their false gods and false teachers and false philosophers of their day, though no doubt their philosophers would try to teach of some kind of happiness after death, but they could never give any real assurance. But Paul speaks from, from, as, uh, from the word of the Lord and gives them that assurance that these believers really craved from the word of the Lord, that Jesus will come back one day. It's a certainty. It's going to happen. Now, I know it's mocked. I know it's ridiculed. I know that even some believers, so-called, say it's just a made-up doctrine, made-up teaching to scare people. I don't see how they get that or where they get that from. Maybe they got it from reading some other book, but it wasn't the Bible that they were reading, okay? But it's not some made-up fairy tale. No, this is what's going to happen. This is a promise from the Word of God, but yes, it is mocked, it is ridiculed, and even flat out denied. People do that today; they scoff at it. The Bible even says in Second Peter, chapter three, verse three, knowing this first, there shall come in the last days of scoffers, walking after their own lusts, and saying, "Where is the promise of His coming?" Now, of course, a scoffer is someone who makes fun or pokes at religion or moral values, that kind of thing. But they're going to scoff at this. They're going to scoff at that. 
uh, coming of the Lord. They're going to scoff at it, deny it even, and not believe it, of course. But listen, just because somebody scoffs at it, just because somebody may deny this truth, does not make this truth any less true. All right? That's not how truth works. You can't just deny truth and expect it to go away. That's not how it works. No, truth stands on its own. Truth is truth, and that's all it can be. There are people today, yes, that deny the return of the Lord. And listen, they've been doing that for centuries, even in Enoch's day. The Bible says in Jude 14 and 15, And Enoch also the seventh from Adam prophesied of thee, saying, Behold, the Lord cometh with ten thousands of his saints to ex execute judgment upon all, and to convince all that are ungodly among them of their ungodly deeds, what they have ungodly committed, and of their hard speeches which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. Now I do understand that in the context of this when Jude is speaking of behold the Lord cometh with ten thousands of his saints. He's not speaking of the rapture but rather the physical return of Jesus when he comes with his saints to the earth. All right, But I'm still trying to prove that people down through the years, down through the decades have been denying the Lord's return. All right, But that's not going to stop his return. You can see it even in Noah's day. Again, when, when Peter wrote of that, he said, Knowing this first, us shall come in the last days scoffers, walking after their own lust, and saying, Where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. For this they willingly are ignorant of by the word of God. The heavens were of old, the earth standing out of the water in the water, whereby the world that was then being overflowed with water perished. But the heavens and the earth which are now by the same order kept in store, reserved unto fire against the day of judgment, perdition of ungodly men. But beloved, be not ignorant of this one thing, that one day is with the Lord as a thousand years, a thousand years as one, as one day. People scoff at this truth. Yes, they do. But why do you think that? Why do you think people scoff at this? I think it's because folks are so engrossed and enthralled and so in love with this world that they don't want it to be true. They, they don't want it to be true, and therefore it's, if I don't believe it to be true, then, then it's not true type of philosophy. But again, that's not how truth works. That's not how, that's not how it works at all. Truth does not hinge on anyone's presupposition about truth, meaning there's no your truth and my truth kind of thing. That doesn't exist, okay? That's just made up for, to appease someone's emotions and in mind. No, there's just simply truth. And again, truth stands alone. And when it comes to the truth, you're going to do one of two things. You're going to believe it or not believe it. And again, just because somebody does not believe something does not make it not true. But I think this is why many deny and mock and scoff at the Lord's return. Why? They don't want it to be true. Because they know if it is true, then they're accountable themselves to the one who is coming. They're accountable to God Almighty. Therefore, they don't want it to be true. And sadly, even believers don't want it to be true. Because I believe that spirit of Laodicea can creep in and get so engrossed in believers' lives as well. But ready or not, listen, Jesus is going to return. It's a promise. It's a truth. It's a fact. It's a certainty. The Bible says in John chapter 14, verse 1 through 3, Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. 
And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself that where I am, there you may be also. 1 John 2, 28, And now little children abide in him that when he shall appear. 1 John chapter 3 and verse 2, Beloved, now are we the sons of God. Doth not yet appear, we shall be, but we know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him, we shall see him as he is. It is a certainty the Lord is coming. What else is there? Okay. Number two, I want to see the closeness of it. Go back to your text in James chapter number five and look at verse number eight. Be also patient, establish your hearts for the Lord or for the coming of the Lord draweth nigh. Now this phrase here means closely approaching, getting closer and closer and closer by the day. Well, what's getting closer and closer? The coming of the Lord. Now, many people want to know, when is Jesus coming back? When is his return? Will he come this year? Will he come next year? Will he come in 100 years? Will he come in the next 2,000 years? Because it's been nearly 2,000 years already since he ascended into heaven. When will he return? Listen, there have been people down through the, <laughs> down through the centuries, really, who have tried to predict the return of Christ, to predict the in times, and these predictions that have been given are absolutely, of course, we know, wrong. <laughs> and I even, of course, I, I've mentioned this one before, and you, you know about this one, but I did a little research on it today about a little booklet that was written in 1988 by Mr. Edgar Wis Wisnett. He said there's 88 reasons why the rapture will, be, will happen in 1988. And obviously he was wrong. But as I started doing a little research on that, you can go on Amazon, all right? The booklet's there on Amazon for sale. You can go buy it, okay, if you want just a nostalgia, I guess. I don't know. But there's no doctrine in there, okay, as far as when he predicted it, that, that, that kind of thing. But, but what I saw today was real heartbreaking. Go to, go to Amazon after, after church, all right? Don't do, it, don't do it now. But anyway, but what I saw on Amazon was heartbreaking in the review section. There were some folks who really got caught up into that moment in that teaching that he's coming back in 1988, got the books, went to the seminars and all of that. But after it didn't happen, those same people who were caught up in it, a couple of them through their reviews said they're now atheists. Why? Because somebody didn't know enough Bible and have enough integrity to say they didn't know when Jesus was going to return. So when people try to predict when he will return, listen, it does more harm than it will ever do good. And it is really point how foolish they are because the Bible is plain. In Mark 13, 32, but of that day and that hour knoweth no man, no, not the angels which are in heaven, neither the Son, but the Father. No one knows. And to try to predict it would be absolutely foolish. The only thing we know about when the rapture is going to take place is I believe it will take place before the great tribulation takes place upon this earth. I believe the catching away, the snatching away of the church will be before wrath ever is unleashed upon this earth. In 1 Thessalonians 1, verse 9 and 10, For they themselves show, uh, show us what manner of entering in we had unto you. And you turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God, and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus, which delivered us from the wrath to come. 
Revelation 3.10, Because thou hast kept the word of my patience, I also will keep thee from the hour of temptation, which shall come upon all the world to try them that dwell upon the earth. Now, when you go through the book of Revelation and you read from chapters 4 to chapter 18, do you know what you will not find within those chapters? You will not find a church. That's right. Why? Because at the very beginning of chapter 4, the Bible says, come up hither. I believe he is showing and pointing to the very rapture, the catching away, the snatching away of the church. After he talks about the seven churches. You will not find the church within the tribulation. You will not find it suffering the wrath of Almighty God. No, why? Because they believed on the Son and the Son's coming back for His bride. He is coming for His church. But when? I don't know. <laughs> Nobody knows. Could be today. There's nothing that has to be put in place for Jesus to return. He'll come at any moment. You see, these believers, even back here in, in our text, James, he was expecting his return. He is, he is telling them, look, it's drawing nigh. This was nearly 2,000 years ago. He's saying it's drawing nigh. Be ready. How much closer are we today to the drawing nigh, the closeness of the return of the Lord? So number one, I see the certainty. Number two, I see the closeness. Number three, quickly, I see this. I see the conduct. The conduct. What do you mean by conduct? Well, here's what I mean. Knowing Jesus is going to return and knowing that the closeness is getting closer day by day by day, here's my question. Knowing that to be true, how are you and I as believers, how are we to be conducting ourselves? How are we to be living with that knowledge in our hearts and minds? Turn with me to 2 Peter, just a couple of pages over from James there. 2 Peter chapter number 3, all right? 2 Peter chapter number 3, I want you to see it for yourself. As Peter has these uh, same thoughts, all right, of the coming of the Lord, and um, he, writes, he writes this. 2 Peter chapter 3, and look at verse number 11. <clears throat> Now, let me start in verse number 10, all right? Let me start in verse number 10. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in which the heavens shall pass away with a great noise, and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. The earth also and the works that are therein shall be burned up. Seeing then that all these things shall be dissolved, what manner of persons ought ye to be in all holy conversation and godliness? Looking for and hastening unto the coming of the day of God, wherein the heavens being on fire shall be dissolved, the elements shall melt with fervent heat. Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for new heavens and a new earth wherein dwelleth righteousness. Wherefore, beloved, seeing that ye look for such things, be diligent that ye may be found of him in peace without spot and blameless. One of the first things Peter mentions here is we, as he says, look for that day and to live on earth till that day, he says this, to live with a holy conversation. Now what is this? What does it mean to be, to, to be holy or have holy conversations? Does that mean to have a holy conversation that we have to only speak in a King James Version vernacular to have a holy conversation? No. That's not what it means. Does it mean that we can only, only, only speak about, about spiritual things meaning we can't talk about sports, can't talk about uh, fashion, can't talk about uh, bass fishing? Hello. <laughs> does it mean we can't talk about those things? No. 
I don't think that's what he's getting at. Rather, I believe he's getting at this with a holy conversation. You see, the conversation has to do with not how so much as much how we talk, but how we conduct ourselves. Our behavior, our manner of living, conversation is speaking about our lifestyle. And this lifestyle should be one that is holy. Now, what does holy mean? Does holy mean we live in seclusion like a monk in a cave? Does it mean that we should be absolutely perfect in everything we do? No, because you can't and you won't. However, holy means in its simplest form, it means to be separate, to be set apart, to be different. You see, God's people, there should be a difference between God's people and the devil's people. Okay, I'm going to say it one more time. There should be a difference between God's people and the devil's people, all right? Thank you. There should be. Just making sure you guys are on the same page. You made me nervous. Anyway, there should be a difference. There should be a difference between a Christian home and a home that does not know Christ. There should be a difference in how we treat our spouses, how we treat our children, then the ones that don't know Jesus as Savior should be a difference. And the difference should be better, by the way. Because Jesus always makes it better, never worse. Should be a difference. There should be a holy conversation. There should be a set-apart difference in our lifestyle, in our living. There should be, should be a difference. Because listen, if Jesus has made a difference in your life, it should be seen outside of your life. He changed my life. If you knew who I was before, <laughs> I've said it, but if you knew who I was before, before God changed my life, he'd be like, I don't know if we should have him as our pastor or not. You know? I'll say this, though. I'm glad there wasn't social media back when I was in high school and afterwards, amen, all right? <laughs> Dodge that bullet. Even when I still meet folks from high school and places I worked before, and I tell them what I'm doing now and say, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm a pastor. And they're like, you're a what? I said, yeah, I'm shocked too, man. It's God changed my life. It should be a difference. Not only is there a holy conversation, he says this, there should be godliness. What does this mean? This simply means this. I'll be quick here. But godliness means to regard God in your life, to give God reverence, to give Him respect, to honor, magnify Him in your life and everything we do. Then he says, without spot. What does this mean? It means free from reproach, living above the criticism. Uh, listen, criticism is always going to come. But does our life prove that criticism from others, does it prove that criticism wrong. Then you have this word that's really close to it here where it says without spot. It says this word blameless. This is how we'd be living, conducting ourselves, knowing Jesus could return at any moment. But what does this blameless mean? Does it mean perfection? Again, no, because no believer is perfect. But it means this. I'm going to give you a redneck definition, all right? Blameless means this, that the critics ain't got no dirt they can use against you. And then when they do pick up that dirt to make mud to throw at you, it can't stick. That's blameless. 
All right? <laughs> That's what that means. So let me ask you, how are you living? How's your holy conversation? Your conduct, your lifestyle, is it holy, without spot, blameless? Or is it ungodly? Lack of character? Lack of light? Does it point? Does it point to Jesus? Our lives should. Everything we do should point to the Lord. That's the conduct in which we should be conducting ourselves, knowing that Jesus will return. And that's getting closer and closer and closer. I don't know when he's coming back. I just know he is. And my simple prayer is this, echoing what John said. Even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus. This world's messed up. The Bible says it gets worse and worse. But it's still a great opportunity to shine the light of the gospel in a dark world and point people to Lord Jesus Christ. And may your light so shine 